Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we'll be talking with Heather Schoen. Welcome back to New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we'll be talking with Heather Schoenfeld about her new book, Building the Prison State, Race and the Politics of Mass Incarceration. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. So I am an associate professor in sociology at Boston University. Um, I actually just started that position. And previous to that, I I was an assistant professor at Northwestern University, um, where I actually got my PhD um, as well in, in sociology. Great. How did this book come about for you? So uh, mass incarceration is something that I have been uh, thinking about um, since um, since the late 90s, really. Uh, you know, now mass incarceration is becoming much more of a household word and a social problem that uh, people are aware of. Um, but back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was not something that uh, people talked about, uh, let alone really um, understood. And so um, I came to the problem of mass incarceration really through the, through the problem of racial inequality um, and with the understanding that the criminal justice system was one site in which uh, racial disparity was so um, so stark um, and uh, so problematic for people's life chances. Um, and so the, the project came about in wanting to understand 
um, how did we get to this place? How did we become the country that uh, incarcerates the most people per capita? Um, how did we come to invest so much in prisons and put so many people um, behind bars? And I felt that the best way to understand that was to tell a story um, at the state level. Um, so if we look at where people are incarcerated in this country, two thirds of them are in state prisons. We often hear a lot about national policy, um, but the fact of the matter is that, that the, the vast, vast majority of people are behind bars at, in either state prisons or um, local jails. And so this project looks at the state level to try to understand what are the politics and the policies that created uh, this prison state, as it were. So let's start with your methods. Oh, go ahead. So that's uh, no, sure. Um, so methods. So this is a um, a project that required um, a lot of different methods, uh, both historical methods, so archival research, um, mainly done in Florida in state archives, um, some private archives of of lawyers. Um, it also involved uh, media um, content analysis. Um, and because I was dealing with recent history, so um, my research, my original research goes back to the 1950s, um, I was able to do uh, interviews with people who were key decision makers uh, during the story I tell. And the, the story in the book uh goes from the 1950s to um, the current time period. And so those interviews were um, key in terms of understanding some of the behind the scenes in decisions that were made and um, some of the thinking of uh, policymakers and other actors that, that is not always clear from the archival record. Great. And you focus specifically on Florida. Why Florida? Yes. It's funny now because I not I almost uh in a way, don't have to answer that question, and that Florida has become, uh, you know, has been in the news for uh, its criminal justice issues uh, more recently. Um, you know, if we think back to um, Trayvon Martin not so long ago, um, the acquittal of, of George Zimmerman and stand your ground laws, Florida is, is this kind of key. Um, uh, player in in sparking the criminal justice debate in this the nation um, or at, at large. Um, but what is less known is that Florida has really played that role for quite some time. Um, so we can think back to a number of lawsuits having to do with really the the punitive nature of Florida uh, criminal justice. Um, so in the, the 1950s, there were lawsuits uh, from people who had escaped Florida chain gangs and uh, didn't want to go back to Florida. 
right? And uh, uh, judges in, in places like Chicago were saying, you know, we don't have to send you back. This is cruel and unusual punishment um, to court decisions in the 1960s that um, uh, represented folks who had not received the assistance of counsel in felony uh, court felony criminal cases. Um, so Gideon versus Wainwright, uh, Gideon was a Florida state prisoner. And this case went to the Supreme Court and established the, the right of assistance of counsel that we know of today. Um, in the 1980s, there was uh, Florida v. Bostick, which established the right of the police essentially to uh, to to stop people for no reason and 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 ask them if they could search their property. And this case had to do with a man on a on a, a bus trip going through Florida, stopped by the state uh, highway patrol looking for drugs. Um, so on and on, Florida has been this kind of key state uh, that's punitive, that has high incarceration rates. Um, and if you look at you know, where people are incarcerated in the United States, these large states account for a, um, a huge number of incarcerated folks. So New York, California, Texas, um, and Florida. Um, in addition to sparking these legal precedents and national conversations on criminal justice, um, Florida is a key political state. So the Sun Belt has had more and more influence in our national politics, and which means that national policymakers really look to both the constituents and the, the policymakers and the policies coming out of these states, and they act as um, uh, model legislation sometimes for um, for national policy. Um, so this is true, for example, in the Prisoner Litigation uh, Reform Act in the mid 1990s, which which severely curtailed the ability of uh, prisoners to bring lawsuits against departments of corrections for conditions violations. For example, um, you know that. Federal law in part came about because of um, legislators in places like Texas and Florida who had been dealing with um, prison litigation against their own departments of corrections and wanted to um, stem that tide, right? Wanted to uh, create more hurdles for prisoners to get through before they could actually uh, sue the state. Um, so all of these things make Florida um, a really great case study. So in chapter one, you say there's no such thing as a clean historical slate. So I was hoping you could sort of set the stage for us in terms of carceral capacity, the carceral state, federalization of crime control. Sure. Yeah. So, so this book really makes, I think, four key um, contributions. Um, and the first one is to center actors' choices and decisions. So the, the common story that we are maybe familiar with around mass incarceration is uh, one that's popularized by Michelle Alexander in The New Jim Crow, which is uh, 
that there is a, a direct line between um, slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration as forms of racial social control. Um, and another is a, a story about the politics of crime, uh, that particularly conservatives and Republicans in the 1960s uh, marshaled uh, crime as a way of um, catalyzing um, uh, white racial resentment in, in the support for Republican candidates and policies. Um, but one of the, the things that both of those accounts don't really get at is, is who are the people who are making these uh, decisions um, and particularly making the decision to uh, build uh, what I call carceral capacity. And so one of the premises of the book is that we couldn't incarcerate this many people. We couldn't have one in 100 folks behind bars if we hadn't built uh, not only the prisons to hold them, but the entire infrastructure of the criminal justice system. Um, so the uh, the human and material and bureaucratic resources, right, dedicated to detecting, apprehending, processing, and punishing people deemed criminal. So this uh, includes, you know, our police, our courts, our jails and our prisons, probation systems, parole systems, but also all the infrastructure um, around that. And so um, the book really looks at these actors' decisions to build state capacity, um, how they came about, and then what their effects are. Um, and then in, in terms of um, how they came about, the kind of the third and fourth contribution is to look at the interaction of national and state politics and policy. Uh, so I think you mentioned uh, federalism or federalization of crime control. Um, one of the other things that we need to understand is that our criminal justice system is, is extremely um, decentralized. We have um, thousands of local police departments. We have, uh, you know, uh, county systems of criminal justice and law enforcement. And then we have each state operating as a, a separate system. Um, at the same time, what's happened at the national level in terms of politics and policy has influenced the states in a fairly uniform matter. And so while each state may have different cultures and, and histories that influence their policies and their politics, uh, the national story does matter. And so one of the things in the book that I do is weave that state and national story together. And then finally, the last contribution is to see race as a cause of these penal policy decisions. So by centering actors' choices and decisions, I'm trying to understand what is the role of race? How do we um, tease out the social mechanisms that uh, race and racism uh, uh, become causes of the carceral state um, in a way that as sociologists, I think, kind of help us understand the, the carceral state a little bit better. 
Um, so just to, to reiterate when you, uh, you're to go back to your question, uh, about this idea of history, right? That what I, um, argue is that the buildup of the prison state is a developmental process that we need to look at, um, history to understand how actors and particularly policymakers made decisions to build um, carceral capacity, right? Um, so this is what I mean when I say there's no kind of historical clean slate, right? People are always um, acting with regard to what's happened in the past. And that's a, a big part of uh, the story I tell is this buildup in carceral capacity and how that then changed the politics and policy that were possible moving forward. Great. So I want to get back to something you mentioned in terms of racialized punishment. And in the book, in chapter two, you tie this back to the civil rights era. And it's been interesting to read this book in tandem with also, I'm currently reading Martin Luther King's autobiography. And so I was hoping you could set this historical stage for us. Yes, of course. So um, the first period of real comprehensive building of carceral capacity that I tell is a story from the 1960s and 1970s. Um, but to really understand that story, we need to go back further and understand that, um, particularly in the South, but in, in other places as well, um, the criminal justice system was a means of racial social control. Um, it's part of the, the reason that it, it uh, the decentralized nature of the criminal justice system stayed decentralized for so long um, was that it allowed local communities to use the criminal justice system kind of as they saw fit. Um, and this became uh, increasingly clear um, in the public imagination during the civil rights movement as um, civil rights activists, both black and white, went uh, down the South or organized themselves in the South uh, to uh, fight Jim Crow. Um, and we see the pictures of law enforcement uh, beating up on protesters. We see the use of uh, jails, right, to put protesters in, um, and real kind of uh, collusion that had been going on for uh, decades between county sheriffs and local police. Um, and so, um, this kind of came to a head, as it were, in the 1960s um, and became um, a problem, right, both in, the ter in terms of uh, for the civil rights movement, uh, but also for um, reformers in some of these states, particularly states like Florida, which uh, was growing in population at the time, uh, was trying to market itself as a, a tourist destination, um, 
the uh, national news of you know police brutality uh, did not look good. And so um, beginning in the, the late 1950s, one of the things that Florida reformers tried to do was to uh, centralize um, and bureaucratize and provide uh, some form of accountability over um, local criminal justice agencies, right? Um, so they started to provide a training for police officers and minimum standards for hiring and education of law enforcement. Um, this also inclu uh, included creating a new state bureaucracy to run the Department of Corrections. So uh, I think we now take uh, take state bureaucracies in some way um, uh, you know, we assume their existence, but some of them were created not so long ago. Um, and they were created in part to rein in the um, use of the criminal justice system as a means of racial social control. Um, and reformers in Florida during the 1960s were helped in significant part by uh, federal investments in the criminal justice system. Um, so at the national level, um, there was a move to invest in uh, local law enforcement and state criminal justice systems, um, in part to um, deal with the uh, urban unrest uh, that was happening throughout the country in the late 1960s, uh, but in part, again, to um, provide more training and more bureaucratization and more uh, coordination among uh, criminal justice agencies. So this was a, a huge moment of reform and investment in the um, in carceral capacity. And I think what what we often miss is that there were uh, progressive motivations for this investment at the time um, to make the criminal justice system actually more fair. Um, and so one key story that I tell, for example, is the, the reformer in the Florida Department of Corrections, uh, his, the, the his name was Louis Wainwright. Uh, he was a good old boy from Northern Florida. Um, but when he took over the Department of Corrections in the 1960s, um, his main goal was actually to um, provide more community-based options for uh, corrections. So he built new community correction centers. He introduced new education programming. Um, and he was very clear that he wanted to uh, rid the institution of some of the uh, segregation practices that had happened in the past. So in the 1950s, for example, it was only uh, select white inmates that were getting uh, education. And so he instituted uh, programming kind of across the board. Um, and so many things that we would think of as um, progressive uh, criminal justice policies today um, really spread throughout the department in the 1970s, even during this time when we think of, oh, this is when incarceration rates um, started rising. Um, but part of the reason that incarceration rates started rising were these uh, investments into the police, police uh 
forces, to courts, um, and to that infrastructure that allowed uh, more policing and processing of, of those that we deemed um, criminal. And so that, that was the key kind of period of um, carceral capacity buildup uh, was in the 1960s and, and 1970s. So then you get into the 1970s in prison overcrowding. And so here you examine a lot of legal, legal language. And I was hoping you could tell us more about that. Sure. So when I was um, investigating and doing my research um, for this book, and I started to talk to people, um, one of the things that people involved in the in decision making kept telling me is, oh, the federal government or the federal courts told us we needed to build new prisons. Um, and I heard it again and again. Um, and knowing a little bit about um, the federal courts and prison conditions litigation, I was pretty sure that the courts didn't really say you have to build new prisons. Um, and so one of the things I did was try to understand why policymakers, particularly um, by the early 90s, understood the courts uh, to say uh, you have to build prisons. Um, and so this stems from a uh, prisoner conditions litigation, a class action uh, that was uh, filed in the early 1970s, um, Costello v. Wainwright. Um, it was not so different from other class action prison conditions lawsuits across the country, uh, particularly in Southern states. Um, Southern state prisons have been particularly um, underfunded in part because of the racialized nature of prisons, right? If we uh, imagined in uh, prisons to be where uh, you know African American criminals were being held, then there was not a lot of uh, support for uh, funding those prisons. The idea was that prisoners should work to sustain prisons, and so what you had were prison conditions, you know, in some places that looked like uh, plantations, uh, in other places that looked like uh, you know, kind of terrible uh, um, factories, right? Um, and in Florida, what you had was extreme overcrowding. Um, the difference in the Florida lawsuit in the 1970s is that Louis Rainwright uh, recognized that the lawsuit could actually help him. It could help the department get the resources that it needed to implement the vision that he had for corrections, right, which included uh, rehabilitation programs. So he wanted to see the overcrowding uh, end uh, as much as, as anyone, really. Um, and so he embraced the lawsuit as a way of uh, kind of, you know, kicking the legislature uh, and saying, hey, you know, we need these resources. Uh, the legislators at the time, however, uh, both uh, conservatives and more liberals really did not want to invest resources in prisons. They had other priorities for the state and they really fought against the lawsuit um, up through the early 1980s when they finally reached a consent decree uh, with the federal court, uh, which said that they would um, 
maintain a particular um, uh, capacity per prison. So an actual square foot, you know, square footage per prisoner. Um, and this was all uh, spelled out in legal language. Now, so it's important in that document that it does not say uh, the the state needed to build new prisons, right? Um, it didn't actually tell the state how to maintain this uh, capacity per prisoner. It just said, you know, this is what you have to do. And so um, in the early 1980s, there was actually an attempt to slow prison admissions. Uh, legislators came together with the lawyers in the Costello litigation. Um, they worked to pass sentencing guidelines. They actually um, put in the legislation a, a decrease in the incarceration rate as a goal. Uh, they came up with alternatives to incarceration. And they really... Um, tried to sell this to the public as a way of um, um, both reducing crime, but also reducing the expense of incarceration. Um, but this then led to um, the second key investment in prison building um, in Florida, uh, which happened in the late 1980s. Um, so at the same time that Florida legislators were trying to reduce incarceration, uh, President Reagan and the Reagan administration began um, the war on drugs and started committing a lot of resources and uh, public um, airtime to the uh, scourge of drugs. Um, and so the war on drugs, um, particularly after 1986, um, just kind of spiked arrests for drug uh, crimes in Florida, uh, particularly for um, African-American offenders. Um, this led to an increase in in prosecutions for drug crimes and admissions to prisons. And so in the middle of this attempt to reduce the prison population and deal with overcrowding, you had the spike in prison admissions. Um, and at the time, uh, Floridians elected uh, Governor Bob Martinez um, and he was only the second Republican governor who had been elected uh, since 1884 in, in uh, Florida, so since Reconstruction. Um, and so Republicans here in Florida are tr were trying to kind of make their mark. It's different from Democrats. Um, and Governor Martinez decided that instead of trying to reduce the prison population, the best way uh, to deal with this was to build new prisons. Um, but he had a problem. He had to convince legislators that um, that it was worth building new prisons, that it was worth, worth the commitment of uh, state resources. And so his strategy was to was twofold, was one to send uh, letters to legislators um, telling them that the courts would make um, would make the state release prisoners 
if um, they didn't build prisons. And, and, and these letters would include sort of the, the specific criminals and crimes that they had committed that would be coming back to these legislators' communities. Um, the second um, strategy was to start advertising um, prisons as economic development in rural communities. Um, and so in the archives, I found uh, letters going both ways to rural communities, talking about the benefits to rural communities. Uh, prisoners create uh, work uh, squads that can go out and do uh, things in the community. Um, and then letters back from uh, rural chambers of commerce um, asking for prisons in uh, their communities. And so um, when I interviewed, for example, uh, the, <clears throat> the Secretary of uh, Corrections during that time, um, he told me that, uh, and I'll, I'll quote here, he said, uh, they put me in the middle sometimes, um, he's talking about these rural communities, sometimes trying to choose you or you but actually we needed all of them. I told them, just be patient, we will get to you too. Um, and so ultimately the legislature um, built um, 15 new prisons in a matter of uh, five or so years um, and added another 25 uh, prison extensions or work camps during the late 1980s and early 1990s. And so this was, um, this represented an almost a doubling of the capacity of the Florida Department of Corrections. <clears throat> Meanwhile, thousands of drug offenders languished in prisons, um, and, and perhaps even more importantly, I argue that it created a new politics of crime control. So this investment in prison capacity then allowed victims organizations and law enforcement organizations and legislators to use political, sorry, to use prison capacity as a political resource uh, to get tough on crime, right? Um, and that this was uh, a strategy of both uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, going into the 1990s. So that's the story of the prison conditions litigation. So this leads into what you call the turning point the carceral state, which is a period of 1991 to 1995. And this includes something that you talked about earlier, which are early releases. So I was hoping you could tell us more. Yeah, sure. So one of the key things that I, I try to do in the book is show that mass incarceration was not inevitable, um, that there were moments in time in which people really talked about doing something different um, and could have made different choices. And then I, I, I try to understand why uh, we kept making these choices to invest in carceral capacity. And so the early 1990s is one of those periods. Um, in the early 1990s, the war on drugs, or at least the rhetoric around the war on drugs, was winding down. And I, I show this by looking at um, uh, how it comes up in newspaper articles in Florida. And you can see a marked uh, decrease in the, the early 1990s. Um, in addition, Florida uh, had built enough prisons to um, satisfy the federal courts that the prisons were not overcrowded anymore. Um, and that they were providing adequate health care in the prisons, which was another a big part of the lawsuit. Um, 
And then in addition, by the early 1990s, it became um, abundantly clear um, that the war on drugs and the buildup in carceral capacity had disproportionately impacted African Americans. And so there were a number of national studies and uh, studies in Florida that showed um, that statistic that we often hear, sort of one in three African-American males between the ages of 18 and 26 are under some control of, uh, you know, under the supervision of the criminal justice system, right? That's a statistic from the early 1990s. Um, and so there was a, a moral imperative, um, <clears throat> particularly, I argue, for the Democratic Party who had, um, you know, in, embraced... Um, um, the civil rights um, uh, movement as uh, as part of their legacy, right? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so um, there was this moment in the early 1990s in Florida where particularly Black legislators, um, it, with the help of a new governor, Democratic governor, Governor Lawton Childs, um, began to question some of the laws uh, that had been passed during the kind of uh, war on drugs frenzy. And these included mandatory minimum um, sentencing laws and habitual offender laws uh, that kept people in prison for um, long periods of time, um, but that were also used by prosecutors as, um, as hammers to um, uh, create more favorable plea bargaining uh, positions for prosecutors. And so um, <clears throat> Lawton Childs originally uh, was very supportive of these efforts and, um, uh, you know, talked about not wanting to spend more money on prisons. He really wanted to invest uh, particularly in, in health care for children for the, in the state. Um, and uh, <clears throat> eventually, however, uh, the politics of um, crime control and the politics of early release uh, changed these political calculations. And so uh, what happened is that built into some of the reform of the 1980s was a stipulation that if the Department of Corrections got too overcrowded, um, that people, uh, defendants or prisoners would be given um, a few days off of their sentences and essentially uh, be released from prison early. Now, um, again, people were, um, uh, you know, what amounted to uh, a few days per month off uh, sentence really sort of added up over time. And so, um, you had uh, the media in the early 1990s begin to report on uh, Florida prisoners who were only serving about a third of their sentences. And so um, this became a big story for the media. Um, and it was something that was picked up by law enforcement who um, really wanted uh, to, to keep investing in prisons. Um, and you also have to remember that in the early 1990s, fortunately, we were at um, kind of the peak of crime. Uh, we now know that it was the peak, um, that crime rates have been going down actually since the early 1990s. Um, but of course, at the time, uh, we didn't know that and, and policymakers didn't know that. And so... Um, 
Jeb Bush, as a gubernatorial candidate, uh, came out and said, you know, Lawton Childs is is soft on crime and doesn't want to build more prisons. And, you know, I propose building, you know, I forget how many it was, you know, uh, prisons for 25,000 new prison beds. Um, and what was amazing to see in the historical record was how quickly um, Lawton Childs, Governor Lawton Childs, reversed course um, and immediately countered with his own proposal for um, prison beds. Um, the, he uh, was supported by a victims' rights uh, movement that had been essentially started by the Sheriffs and Prosecutors Association. Um, and he was supported, of course, by law enforcement. Um, and, and the story I tell here is a story in which um, those communities most affected by crime, uh, particularly urban uh, Black uh, neighborhoods, um, those voices weren't really heard in the, the state conversation about what to do about crime um, and where to put resources. Um, it was a pretty one-sided conversation at the state level. We need to build more prisons in order to protect crime victims. Whereas uh, the, the victims of crime at the community level, and particularly Black victims of crime, um, talked about more resources for education, more resources for treatment, uh, better policing, right? Less police brutality and so on. Um, and so this is also a story of the way in which our political system disadvantage, uh, disenfranchises uh, some groups in just the structure of how policy is made at, at the state level. Um, so again, to go back to your question, that's one way, uh, one time in which there was um, different decisions that could have been made um, in the early 1990s, but eventually um, this state legislators uh, decided to commit uh, more resources uh, to building prisons. So you mentioned that uh, crime starts to fall in the 90s and it continues to fall, but there's increasing pressure to put on, on prisons to use tough justice, um, which you argue puts more folks at risk of incarceration. So here in chapter six, you turn your eye to policymakers. So I was hoping you could tell us what you found out here. Sure. So, um, so one of the th one of the questions I had um, also going into this project was, you know, as sociologists, there's a long tradition in the sociology of punishment, which is to say, you know, the 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 link between crime and punishment is rather tenuous, right? Um, there's all of these other political and social considerations that go into um, incarceration or prisons. Um, there's not a direct link between crime and incarceration, um, but you know, by some point, you know, by the early 2000s, there's a way in which crime rates have been going down for a decade. Um, and um, nationally, there's a different conversation happening, right? Post-2001, September 11th, there's a conversation about um, terrorism, right? And not so much about domestic crime. Um, 
And yet this was actually a time when I was in Florida doing my field work around um, 2006 and 2007, or at least starting to do my field work. And um, I was surprised uh, at the extent to which um, the um, governor and was still sort of using uh, the politics of crime um, to uh, get elected, even though this was not something that seemed to be something that his constituency or any constituency uh, really at the state level was calling for. And so uh, particularly here, I am um, referring to uh, the governorship of Charlie Crist. Now, Charlie Crist is a is an interesting uh, character. Um, so he started his political career as a state legislator, and he made a name for himself by, and this was in the, the mid-1990s, he made a name for himself by single-handedly bringing back chain gangs to the state of Florida. Um, he uh, got himself on criminal justice committees and was able to convince his fellow legislators to pass a bill that would require the Department of Corrections to come up with a way of uh, putting uh, prisoners to work in the community in a very public way um, in chains, right? So this was a part of this get tough on crime um, uh, move in the 1990s, which was not just about getting tough on crime, but getting tough on those we deem to be criminal offenders, both in prisons and outside of prisons. Um, and so uh, the newspapers uh, gave Charlie Crist uh, the uh, nickname of Chain Gang Charlie, which he kind of wore with pride. Um, and he was a uh, the ultimate politician. So after state legislator, he ran for um, I'm not even going to remember the order in which this happened: attorney general, and then governor, and then governor again, until he finally, uh, you know, was elected as uh, governor. Um, but. His entire almost a huge part of his campaign um, in um, the early 2000s was about passing something that he called the Anti Murder Act, um, which you know the name just uh, sort of in a way says it all because who's really for murder, right? Um, but this was the Anti Murder Act, and it and it was in response to. Um, a number of murders, uh, you know, very brutal murders of uh, young uh, white uh, children, girls, in fact, um, who had been killed by um, folks, uh, defendants who were um, out on probation or parole um, at the time. And so what the Anti-Murder Act did would say that um, Anyone who violated probation, who had been convicted of these crimes, uh, would be immediately sent back to prison. So it made prison the kind of default uh, for probation uh, violations. Um, and um, what was interesting is that by this time, it had started to become clear to the legislature that uh, prisons were, were costing the state um, a lot. Um, and so he received for the first time um, in 
you know, many years, some pushback from the legislature about this bill. Um, And so they kept narrowing the bill and narrowing the bill until finally he could kind of claim a political victory uh, with the passage of the bill when he um, first became um, governor. Um, And so what was of amazing to me was the stickiness of what I call the carceral ethos, uh, which is this idea that um, that politicians need to be tough on crime, uh, that constituencies will support them being tough on crime, or more importantly, punish them for being uh, soft on crime, um, and that what being tough on crime means is essentially putting more people behind bars for longer periods of time um, and um, and um, acting as though they're disposable. Um, and once they're behind bars, not really thinking about what they're doing there or um, the consequences of their imprisonment. Um, and so, um, so that's the story I tell about um, kind of the the consequences of the the tough on crime um, movement of the 1990s was it really carries through as crime declines um, into the 21st century. Yeah. So then you bring us to the present day and you talk about sort of longer term consequences of this penal system over time. So I was hoping you could bring us up to speed to, to 2016. Sure. Yeah. So. Um, we, you may be aware that, um, there has been talk now of, um, reform and trying to reduce prison populations, um, or, um, to bring, uh, programming back into prisons and this kind of thing. Um, and this really started as, um, a fiscal concern. Um, so in the, as a consequence of the 2008 election, uh, sorry, recession, uh, state lawmakers became more and more um, aware that of the, the extent to which corrections or prisons were eating up um, the state budget. Um, so for example, um, the current um, governor of Florida, uh, Governor Rick Scott, when he was um, campaigning in, in 2011, um, he talked about, or I'll quote uh, him, he says, we are spending billions of tax dollars locking people up and getting very little value on the dollar. Um, 66% of those incarcerated will be back within three years and will have to pay for that too. Um, so the emphasis is very much is on the cost of the system and the ineffectiveness of the system. Um, And you can hear this type of language um, from many different uh, sides of the political aisle at this point. Um, What I think people are less aware of, and I hope my book um, exposes a little bit more, is that um, corrections in Florida have been underfunded at least since um, 1999, um, uh, when Jeb Bush became governor. Um, So... During that time, 
um, from 1999 to when um, Governor Scott uh, takes over as governor, um, there had been a sort of drastic curtailment of inmate programs um, in the prisons. Uh, healthcare had deteriorated. Um, officers were promoted with records of who had records of violence against inmates. Um, the Office of the Inspector General in the Department of Corrections had been gutted. Um, there was corruption. Um, corrections officer turnover was high and pay uh, was low. Um, and um, in fact, the starting salaries for corrections officers in Florida ranked less next to last among the 10 largest prison systems in the country. And so this resulted in um, uh, prison brutality um, against um, prisoners in the Florida Department of Corrections. And so the story I tell um, in the last substantive chapter of the book is this um, these two policy problems. On one hand, this um, the amount we spend more generally on corrections, and then on the other hand, um, prison brutality and the deteriorating conditions of prisons. Um, and these are intricately linked um, and create an issue for reformers whose main argument is the expense of prisons because uh, one way to deal with the expense of prisons is to underfund prison and make them um, unsafe places to be. Uh, similar, you know, it's like we're going back to uh, the 1960s and 1970s um, in terms of these uh, prison conditions. Um, and uh, I was amazed again doing my research in a way how little national attention um, the conditions of state prisons are getting uh, these days. Um, the Miami Herald has done an amazing job of investigative reporting on these issues, um, uh, particularly uh, this uh, the the newest round of reporting starting in about uh, 2014 um, began with the death of an a prisoner named uh, Darren Rainey who was in a. Uh, a facility meant for mentally ill uh, prisoners. Um, and he uh, was essentially scalded to death um, in a, a hot shower by corrections officers who still have not uh, been brought to, uh, you know, accountability for uh, that crime. Um, and so, um, Given this, these sort of terrible conditions and the cost, um, one of the, 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 the things that I um, investigate or talk about in the book is the way in which um, the feedback effects of the carceral state and this investment in carceral capacity uh, makes change extremely difficult. Um, so the politics of crime is alive and well. Um, governors still feel the need to have law enforcement standing behind them, um, you know, in their uh, campaigns and during their governorship. Um, the structure of the criminal justice system makes it very hard to change. Uh, the decentralized nature, the layered nature of all of the laws that we've passed um, in the past uh 
three or four decades. Um, <clears throat> elected law enforcement, elected prosecutors and sheriffs who have a stake in uh, maintaining carceral capacity. Um, rural communities whose uh, livelihoods um, in some way depend upon the prisons uh, located there have, have in, in uh, some places effectively fought uh, closing prisons um, in their communities. Um, and so all of these things um, combine to make um, change extremely uh, difficult. And so um, one of the things that I argue moving forward is that um, we need more than reform. We need more than kind of uh, tinkering at the margins. Great. So here I was hoping you could give us the big takeaways from your book and also talk about what you call a new and just ethos. So the big takeaway that I want uh, people to leave with um, having read the book or listened to this podcast um, is this idea of partial capacity um, that one of the key reasons we find ourselves in the position today as the uh, highest incarcerator in the world is our investment in carceral capacity. That is the material and human uh, resources needed to uh, detect, apprehend, uh, process, and detain those people we find criminal. And this spans you know, everything from policing to prisons and, uh, and, and even larger than that. And so um, understanding that we've made those investments in carceral capacity um, instead of other types of investments that we could have made. In fact, investments that we know uh, reduce the uh, potential of criminal offending, investments in early childhood education, for example, investments in um, uh, nurse visits to uh, vulnerable um, mothers and children. Um, so things like that. And so um, this then leads us into a conversation about how do we reform? And one of my key takeaways here is to say we want to understand that anytime we create new things, new programs around the criminal justice system, um, that creates consequences and that creates interest groups. Um, and so I argue that what we need to do is um, de-invest in carceral capacity, rein in that, um, that spending, um, and invest in things that are completely outside of the criminal justice system. Um, so, and then finally, in terms of a new ethos, um, the other thing that we need um, for reform is a new idea of what justice should look like. Um, for so long, um, at least long in terms of, uh, you know, contemporary criminal justice, you know, the last 30 or 40 years, our idea has been, well, the more prisons, the more punitive, the better. Um, and we're starting a reform effort 
uh, without really having a um, a new ethos of justice. What should criminal justice look like? What should it do? What is the purpose um, of these systems that we have or systems that we are creating? And so that's the the conversation that I want us um, to start to have. And I hope uh, this book will prompt. Great. So today we've been talking with Heather Schoenfeld about her book, Building the Prison State, Race and the Politics of Mass Incarceration. What are you working on now, Heather? Thank you. So uh, my new project uh, is also focused at state level policy and politics, and um, it is in collaboration with uh, Michael Campbell, who is at the University of Denver and someone who I have collaborated with before. And we are looking at um, states' um, ability to pass laws that do reduce uh, their prison population and carceral capacity. Um, and so some states, like New Jersey, for example, have seen um, a marked decrease in their prison population since um, 2008 or earlier. So uh, New York, um, New Jersey, um, other states are just uh, now um, passing some, you know, fairly significant reforms. So we'll see the, we are yet to see the effects of uh, states like Georgia, for example. Um, but then some states are very much um, uh, holding on to the status quo, Florida being one of them. Um, and so we are doing a, a case comparison of states that are making progress, states that are making less progress, um, and trying to understand the, the people and the institutions and the policies that are coming together to create um, some progress in this area to significantly reduce prison populations. So it's, a, it's an NSF-funded project um, that is uh, just in its early stages. Sounds like a cool project. Thanks. Well, thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I, I appreciate it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.